Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Tremendous privilege and honor for the World Affairs Council and the Fort Worth Club to welcome General Ray Oderno. Thank you, Jim, for that introduction. I do have to make one correction, though, because my daughter's an interior architect. If, you, if she's heard you say interior decorator, she'd be rolling over right now. So I got to, I got to correct that. So she makes it very clear to me all the time. Up when uh, I made that mistake once, and I'll never make it again. It's great to be here uh, in Fort Worth. I was trying to think about the last time I was here, and I think, unfortunately, it was maybe about five, six, seven years ago. It was for an Army TCU football game, and Army didn't do so well that day. <laughs> and um, Army was supposed to come back this year and play in the Armed Forces Bowl because I think because the stadium's being renovated, they went and played it in Dallas. But they beat SMU, so that was a good thing. Um, I do want to mention that, in fact, today, many of you probably know it's the 67th anniversary of D-Day as we sit here today. And, you know, I often think back of that as the beginning of the end of World War II, and you think about the enormous sacrifices that were made on that day, and probably change how the world is today, or how it might have been. And so I think today is an incredibly important, important day. And I often think about those men and women who participated in that day, and as you mentioned, my father-in-law actually drove the landing craft on D-Day on Omaha Beach, and um, he would never talk about it much until uh, uh, the day he died. And so, but it was such, always meant a lot to him, and his time in the Navy was probably the most important time of his life. And I think it's because as I talk, as I go around, it's about being something greater than yourself. And I think that's what we try to instill in all of our young people today. Well, it's good to be back in Texas. I've spent about eight years in Texas over my life, all at Fort Hood. I've had a chance, uh, and uh, we kind of adopt Texas as our second home, frankly. We spent, our kids graduated from high school here. My son is a senior at Texas Tech. And uh, it, we, we really feel a strong uh, pull back here to the state of Texas. So it's really an honor to be here. And I want to thank the World Affairs Council of the Dallas-Fort Worth area and again, it's, as I go around, I, I try to speak to a lot of the World Affairs Councils because they have such an impact on the community. But as always, I found that, of course, things are always bigger in Texas. And the membership of over 3,500 is the biggest that I have seen anywhere I've gone. It really is astounding, uh, the size. I also think it has to do with people here are interested in what's going on in the world around you. And I think that's such an important, important thing. It's also a particular honor to be here uh, as the Council's 60th Anniversary Lecture Series. 
That's over 25% of our history of our nation, which you've dedicated to international awareness, understanding and connections that enhance the, region, the region's global stature, and to prepare North Texans to thrive in this complex world we live in and what their role might be. I'm also extremely appreciative of the focus that you put on your youth, in particular through your international education program, which has impacted nearly one million students and teachers in the region since 2004. I firmly believe, as I know all of you do, that the future of our country is our youth, the education of our youth. They're the ones who will carry on our nation, and those are the ones who will make a difference in the future as we move forward. And I believe it's important for all citizens of the United States, but especially our young people, to understand the broader world around them. We must overcome our American tendency to look inward. If we hope to realize our true potential to lead an increasingly interdependent world in the future. And considering the many challenges we face, we need to nurture these future leaders, whether it's in the military or other governmental service, or in the local, regional, and national business community. There's significant roles for all to play as we move forward. As a representative of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guardsmen, I'd like to take a minute and provide my general perspective on the strategic environment and how we as leaders and future leaders might approach such a complex set of challenges, but also opportunity. Our world has become interconnected, and the term we use, globalized. Yet billions still live in relative isolation from the fruits of liberty and prosperity, which we enjoy every day here at home. Globalization has permitted many of those disenfranchised peoples to see what they're missing. It has enabled them to challenge the status quo and as we found out over the last several months, at the speed of Twitter. Witness the Arab Spring uprisings that we've seen right in front of us here over the last several months. It has also given rise to a new set of emerging powers. We're beginning to see a shift in power in Asia, for example, where emerging powers such as China and India, in particular, are beginning to shift the balance of power in Asia mostly from an economic perspective, but one that is changing the world we live in, and one that we must understand for our nation to move forward. Throughout the 20th century, we defined the global commons as earth, land, and sea. Excuse me, earth, sea, and air. And based on that, as a military, our job was to control or protect our own access to land, sea, and air. And by doing that, that enabled us to flourish economically. That enabled us to move forward as a nation. That enabled us to continue to develop as a nation. But globalization has changed this. It's accelerated by the advances in our own technology. So it's opened, in my mind, and not everybody agrees with me, two new pieces of what we call the global commons, space, and cyberspace. 
And it's now important that we understand the role that space and cyberspace plays in the development of any nation, in the movement of information, in the, in the, in the ability to protect ourselves, in the ability to secure our own nation, and the ability to continue to develop ourselves economically. So vying for access to these global commons, emerging powers will challenge us to rethink how we secure and manage these commons to ensure the free flow of resources and commerce and ideas for the greater prosperity of all. And we're also being challenged on how we think about war and the character of our enemies. We increasingly find our adversaries operating in a gray space, adaptively applying a mix of conventional weapons, irregular warfare, regular tactics, terrorism, or even criminal behavior to obtain their political objectives. We now have a term for this. We have to, of course, define everything in the military. And we define this as a hybrid threat. This hybrid threat may be state-sponsored. It may be non-state actors, such as Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, and other terrorist organizations. Or in some cases, it may be a combination of both state and non-state actors. For example, Hezbollah is a non-state actor with more rockets and missiles than many states in the Middle East. This terrorist organization could pose a conventional threat in the Eastern Mediterranean. So we can't just plan, simply plan for a single type of threat, and certainly not from a sing single monolithic ad adversary. Security and prosperity are no longer zero-sum equations in today's world. It is in our best interest that every nation enjoys greater prosperity, which along with it brings better security. However, we must act positively to influence this new global system. Our security depends on how we understand and engage in competition and cooperation with the globalized world. We have to remain engaged. The broader Middle East highlights the complexity of the environment, constituting a wide swath from Morocco in the west of, uh, to the west of Afghanistan and Pakistan in the east. The broader Middle East is the nexus of every key strategic challenge. Demographically, a growing youthful and unemployed population is stressing the region. Combined with limited social freedom and exposure via modern media to the gulf that divides them from more prosperous regions of the world, and the gulf between them and their own governments. This is a recipe for change and potentially significant unrest. The importance of the broader Middle East natural resources underscores why so many conventional and emerging powers attempt to influence events in this region as they compete for all of these resources. It is also in this region that weak and failed states such as Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan before 2001 became fertile ground for malign non-state actors, groups such as Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Al-Shabaab in North Africa who fill the vacuum of ungoverned terrain. So therefore, what happens now that we've had the Arab Spring? The so-called Arab Spring is certainly not over. 
Democracy, as we know, and as our Iraqi partners have discovered, is messy and difficult. But how nations such as Egypt emerge from this period of upheaval is extremely important to, the, important to the United States, the region, and the international community, and the relationships that we're able to develop, we're able to develop in the region. We must remain as engaged as possible without being seen to meddle in internal affairs. That's a very difficult, fine line to walk. What we're also seeing in the popular uprisings around the Middle East is a competing narrative to the violent, theocratic one espoused by extremist groups like Al-Qaeda. And the demise of Osama bin Laden is significant. I believe it demonstrates our unrelenting resolve to pursue those who threaten us no matter how long it takes. However, the overall impact on Al-Qaeda is yet to be determined. We must sustain the pressure on Al-Qaeda. It is having an impact. But we must not be fooled. Al-Qaeda is still very capable of exporting violent extremism to the West, and specifically the United States. We must remain vigilant and engaged. I believe current strategic trends are valid signposts to guide us into the near future. But ahead of us looms a flashing warning sign emerging in the United States, our own fiscal crisis. This crisis, 14 trillion debt, is perhaps our primary threat to national security, given the interwoven nature of economic prosperity, power, and security. Solving this problem will be an enormous challenge. The current fiscal environment is going to require very difficult decisions, especially with respect to our own national defense. We are facing extremely dynamic and an uncertain world today. We need to make measured, tough choices. These choices must be matched to our strategy, and they cannot be short-sighted. In the past, during periods of austerity, we've said, we will just do more with less. This is a recipe for creating an under-resourced, hollow force, which would be disastrous to us in the future. We must understand and define the risk to our own national security. We must prudently accept risk where we can, because we can no longer have the luxury to buy down the level of risk with money. We must develop a force that is adaptable, flexible, that is inherently joint, which maximizes the synergy between the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and our Air Force. We must be able to develop new solutions for this complex world we face. But as we do this, we must never put our servicemen and women at greater personal risk. To the contrary, we must avoid a hollow force through careful strategic review and prioritization. And as I said before, this will require difficult choices between modernization, force structure, and well-being. All difficult, difficult, tough choices. However, I remain hopeful because I believe in the power of leadership. Our ability to develop leaders remains the foundation of our military and our national security. 
History and personal experience suggest a couple of key attributes for successful leadership today. Leaders must understand the interlocking fabric of our environment. Leaders must be open-minded specifically to ideas that may be different from their own. They must never stop learning. Successful leaders continually build relationships and circulate outside of their own comfort zones, getting to know people who don't think like us. Sometimes you must challenge basic assumptions that maybe sometimes you've held for your entire life. A successful leader forges unity of effort among diverse stakeholders. Unity of effort is leadership by multiplication. It's about identifying and engaging the re relevant instruments of power and influence toward a common goal. These leadership qualities apply equally overseas, in combat, or at home in the Pentagon. And I believe they apply throughout the government as well as our private sector. I have learned over the past several years that there are limits to military power. Our military is just one instrument of our nation's capabilities. And given the potential for decreasing resources across the government now more than ever, we must work together with our civilian governmental and private sector partners to develop and implement solutions to this environment that we face on and off the battlefield. As I said earlier, the strength of our military is and will always be leadership. On this subject during a previous time of great technological and social change, General Omar Bradley said, leadership is intangible and therefore no weapon ever designed can replace it. Effective leadership today shouldn't mean the successful protection of a particular weapon system or a governmental program. Effective leadership in times of momentous strategic uncertainty means navigating often painful change with moral and ethical courage, with physical and mental toughness, and with appreciation for the greater goal of our nation's long-term prosperity and security. Everyone must have a role in achieving this. We cannot be short-sighted. My travels around the world have confirmed what I already knew. The United States is an incredibly unique and diverse country like no other. Our moral and ethical values, our freedoms and liberty remain a beacon for many others around the world. We should embrace that. We have an opportunity to influence. We have to take that opportunity. I tried to throw out some things just to stimulate some thought. I'm sure it'll stimulate some questions. But let me close by saying how much I appreciate the work of the World Affairs Council in fostering more informed citizens here in North Texas. And thank you, most importantly, for your support to our young people and your continued support of our military. Our young people will be our future leaders. We must do everything we can to develop them. It's an honor for me to lead such a great generation of men and women who have raised their right hand to protect this great nation. So I was driving this weekend, I had the radio on, and in, in commemoration of D-Day, they're interviewing two uh, World War II vets who participated in the D-Day invasion. One was 94, one was 96. 
And they asked them about their experience in D-Day, and they explained what they had gone through, what they remembered, what they thought about their comrades, about how it formed the rest of their lives. But the last question the individual asked them was, do you believe they'll ever be as great a generation as yours? And the 94-year-old didn't even hesitate. And he said, I believe the young men and women today are as great as any generation we've ever had in this country. What they have gone through over the last 10 years, the difficulty in the environment that they're operating in is more difficult than we ever faced. And yet they remain the best in the world today. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I would just tell you that I get to see that every single day. And that's why after 35 years of service, I continue to stand here and enjoy my opportunity to associate with these young men and women every single day. I ask all of you as you go around your normal duties to think about those who continue to be deployed around the world today in protection of our freedom and liberties. And I ask you when you see them along the street to thank them for what they do for you. Thank you so much today for your attention. I absolutely look forward to your questions. So thank you very much. We have a wonderful tradition here that the first question goes to one of our participating high schools. And we have a question from Alito High School. What are some of the goals that you hope to accomplish as Chief of Staff of the United States Army? Well, if confirmed by the United States Senate, we, we're taught to say that because you can't presume that you'll ever have the job. Uh, I will go through a confirmation process probably in July, and hopefully if I'm approved, I'll move forward. As I outlined here in my talk, it's really about continuing to develop leadership within the military. Because although we're going to have difficult times and things are going to change, we're going to see some significant change over the next 10 years. And I think what we do today will help develop us in that change. What it's going to take is leaders who can think through very complex problems. Because if you have good leaders, people will follow. And we're going to have to have good leaders who come up with new ideas on how we're going to protect ourselves, how we're going to secure this country, and how we're going to make this a more peaceful world. You know, the one thing I always tell everyone is most people think in uniform, I have people come up to me and say, why do you like war? I'm going to tell you, I do not like war. Once you've been in war, you don't ever want to see it again. And so it's our goal to develop leaders that will help us to sustain peace. So that's number one. Number two is to develop a force, my part being the Army, that has, is able to be adaptable and provide a wide range of capabilities for the President or the Secretary of Defense to employ against numerous, solution, against numerous problem sets, whether it be humanitarian assistance all the way up to some larger engagement. But it's about our force being adaptable. It's about us being able to do more than just a couple things, but us to be very good at everything that we do. And that's what we'll strive for as we move forward.
For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.